This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Our Decisions Shape Our Lives. In the first half, Henry D. Moyle and Terry R. Siemens share their addresses, Beware of Temptation and We Believe in You. Then in the second half, Quentin L. Cook speaks on Great Expectations. I have a fable here tonight that I'd like to read to you. I hope it impresses you in some small degree because it's had a tremendous effect upon me the last week or two. It was a fable written by Mary Howitt, and I'm sure all of you have heard it before. Will you walk into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. "'Tis the prettiest little parlor that you ever did spy. "'The way into my parlor is up a winding stair, "'and I have many pretty things to show when you are there. "'Oh, no, no,' said the little fly. "'To ask me is in vain, "'for who goes up those winding steps "'can ne'er come down again.'" I'm sure you must be weary, dear, with soaring up so high. Will you rest upon my little bed, said the spider to the fly. There are pretty curtains drawn around. The sheets are thin and fine. And if you like to rest a while, I'll snugly tuck you in. Oh, no, no, said the little fly, for I've often heard it said, They never, never wake up again who sleep upon your bed. Said the cunning spider to the fly, Dear friend, what shall I do to prove the warm affection I've always felt for you? I have within my pantry good store of all that's nice. I'm sure you're welcome. Will you please take a slice? Oh, no, no, said the little fly. Kind sir, that cannot be. I've heard what's in your pantry, and I do not wish to see. Sweet creature, said the spider, you're witty and you're wise. How handsome are your gauzy wings, how brilliant are your eyes. I have a little looking glass upon my parlor shelf. If you'll step in a moment, dear, you shall behold yourself. I thank you, gentle air, she said, for what you're pleased to say, and bidding you good morning now, I'll call another day. The spider turned him round about and went into his den, for well he knew that silly fly would soon come again. So he wove a subtle web in a little corner slide and set his table ready to dine upon the fly. Then he came out onto his door again and merrily did sing, Come hither, hither, pretty fly, with the pearl and silver wing. Your robes are green and purple. There's a crest upon your head. Your eyes are like the diamonds bright, but mine are dull as lead. Alas, alas, How very soon this silly little fly 
hearing his wily, flattering words, came slowly flittering by. With buzzing wings she hung aloft, then near and nearer drew, thinking only of her brilliant eyes and green and purple hue, thinking only of her crested head. Poor foolish thing! At last up jumped the cunning spider and fiercely held her fast. He dragged her up his winding stair into his dismal den within his little parlor, but she ne'er came out again. And now, dear little children, who may this story read? To idle, silly, flattering words, I pray you will ne'er give heed. Unto an evil counselor, close heart and ear and eye, and take a lesson from this tale of the spider and the fly. There's never a student or indeed a young person to whom the moral of this fable could not be made profitable. Flattery, a desire to be popular, to gain favor, power, wealth, yes, even affection, love, security, are the things toward which the temporal ambitions of man lead us. I doubt very much that I need comment too much upon the moral of this story, but to me, it immediately raised the question in my mind as I decided to read this to you tonight. I wonder how many spiders we have here tonight. That's the question. This is a moral which brings into our hearts a tremendous pity for the little fly. If we further personalize and compare with the fly, this moral as it might be implied to you and to me, in our innocence. But you know, my pity goes out to the spider who enticed the fly, because I know that just as truly as the fly failed to live up to her knowledge, her understanding, of life and its laws, she paid for her mistake with her life. And in our experience in the classroom, in our experience in the world, on missions, in the church, in our wards, in our auxiliary organizations, we constantly find a spider here and then, and what do we do with it? A young lady came to me the other day just to give you an example of what I have on my mind. And she said, if I had only slapped his face the first time, I'd have never had any trouble. Now this spider was able to forego looking at pretty things. She was able to forego the privilege of rest when she might be tired. She must have had a lot of willpower because she even left the goods in the pantry alone. That would be terrible for me. (laughs) But you see, there is a constant 
incessant application of temptation to us all throughout all our lives. It never ceases. And if we could but learn the moral of this uh, simple fable and apply it to ourselves, how wonderful it would be. You know, in the 14th chapter of St. John, the Savior told his disciples that he would send them a comforter, which would teach them all things and bring all things to their remembrance. Now, how can we apply that to the moral of this story? There isn't a single solitary person within the sound of my voice but what has had this experience. They've been tempted to do something or we've been tempted to do something which was wrong. And what happens? We possess that comforter. We were given the Holy Ghost when we were baptized by immersion for the remission of sins. And that Holy Ghost, the Spirit of the Holy Ghost, has been with us ever since. It's a gift. And when you or I, as recipients of the Holy Ghost, undertake to do anything that is contrary to the laws of God, that still small voice within us calls our attention to the fact that we're about to transgress. We have the advantage over the fly. And when we do transgress and disregard the warning of the Comforter, we place ourselves in open rebellion against God. And to me that's very serious. I've gone to many schools in my life, many where I was the only member of the church, I have never felt so badly about what my fellow students did who had not received the tremendous advantage that had come to me when I was eight years of age. To be baptized into the church and to receive the Holy Ghost and to have a testimony born into my heart that God lives and that Jesus is the Christ. And I can truthfully say tonight, Whenever I've been tempted, there's something within me warned me. My mother didn't have to be there, neither did my father nor my bishop. But there was something which was within me, which was given to me as a matter of right through my obedience to law, the law of God. And all I needed to do was to take the warning and keep myself unspotted from the sins of the world. But if perchance the warning is not heeded, I cannot reconcile myself to any other thought than the thought that we then transgress in open rebellion against God. To me it's just the same for all practical purposes, as though God himself were to speak to me personally and say, my boy, you must not do that. The Holy Ghost is a member of the Godhead, and we have the privilege through our faithfulness to be in constant and immediate contact with one of the Godhead, him to whom is given the right and the responsibility to communicate between the Godhead 
and the children of God here upon the earth. And that's why it's so important that we learn early in our lives to develop that spirit within us, that gift of the spirit within us, by which we shall never be free from its warning power. To me, it's one of the greatest gifts that could be conceived of for God to give to man. Would that I could give a similar gift to my children and know that wherever they went, under whatever circumstances they found themselves, that my warning would be in their hearts and call to their attention forcibly to a degree commensurate with their needs. How wonderful it would be if in early life we might fully realize some of the things that are commonplace every day. As a lawyer, it has become as simple and familiar to me that a contract should have a consideration as um, the Ten Commandments. Now, when we step over from the law into equity, a consideration is not enough. We have to have what the Latins would say, a quid pro quo. In other words, the consideration in order to be uh, enforced through the courts of equity must bear some relationship to the value of that which was received. And I am sure that that principle of a quid pro quo carries over into the application and the enforcement of the laws of God. Two ways. First of all, when we give to the Lord in keeping with His laws, take for example our tithing, we receive a quid pro quo or a commensurate blessing. Only in that case, the Lord has told us that He would open up the heavens and let us receive many times the blessing which would be represented if it were confined alone to our offering of our tithes. And just as there is the necessity for a consideration for every agreement, on the other side there must be of necessity a penalty for every sin. I've written here the cost of a thing, whether it is a contract or a sin, is the value of what I call life, which is required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. And certainly there is no transgression that will fail to carry its penalty. And there's no unselfish act. There's no act of brotherly love which will fail us in returning a reward. And while that may not be our motive, I'm sure Latter-day Saints do what they do in their welfare program and in all of our activities, especially our charitable activities, our missionary work, all of our activities, in fact, is to bring about the exaltation and the eternal life of man. And whatever we do in any direction, 
in our church activities acting under that same inspiration of the Holy Ghost brings to us manifold of blessings in return. The greatest blessing I could ask the Lord for you would be that you never lose that enthusiasm, that feeling of nearness to God, that feeling of a willingness upon the part of our Father in heaven to permit us to draw just as close to Him as we will. You know, it's not given to all of us, no matter how we might work toward it, and I think this is a good thing for many of you ambitious young men to keep in mind. It isn't possible for all of us to get rich, accumulate uh, an overly large share of this world's goods, but you know there isn't a single solitary member of the church that can't receive as great, as rich, a spiritual blessing as he wills to do, because there has been something implanted in the heart of man, every one of us, and women too, that gives us an inherent right to receive every possible blessing the Lord can bestow upon his people if we will but work for it. President Smith, the other day in a sermon in the 18th Ward, from which I'm going to quote in a moment before I get through here, said that revelation comes to no one except through work. And then he calls our attention to the fact that the Savior said, those who knock, unto them will the door be opened. We have to take the step. We have to knock. And we have to knock with a purpose in mind. And we have to be in sufficient communion with our Father in heaven that He knows the purpose of our knocking. And then the doors opened up to us. You know, it was Peter who said, this is, I think, really my favorite passage of Scripture, speaking to the church in his day, said, including all the membership of the church, ye are a chosen generation. A holy nation, a royal priesthood, that ye show forth the love of him who hath brought you out of darkness into his glorious light. Now that light to me is the prompting of the Holy Ghost. That knowledge, that recollection, that warning which comes to us as we live in tune with the commandments of the Lord. I want to just give you the conclusion of these remarks that I'd written out here about the law, and that is that we live under a law. Our very existence upon this earth is the best evidence of all that we came here in accordance with law and that we must be bound by the law. We must know the law. And we must have the help of the Holy Ghost to lend obedience to the law constantly. And if any of us can complete our lives upon this earth, lending obedience to these simple, understandable laws of God, then we have succeeded 
in the utmost. I'm going to close with reading a quotation from what President McKay said Sunday, December the 23rd in the 18th Ward. You know, somehow or other, the older I get and the closer contact I have with the president of this church, the more I realize that the greatest of all scriptures that we have in the world today is current scripture. And what the mouthpiece of God says to his children and to the children of God upon the earth, all of them. Because when God speaks, his word is not confined to the membership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Intended for them, of course. But it's his word and his will and his law made manifest through his ordained and anointed servant to the world. And to me, what the president says is scripture. And I love it more than all other. He says, a revelation of God, that's what I quoted a moment ago, a revelation of God does not come to man unless he prepares himself for it and lives worthy of it. And then my testimony to you is it comes. And we'll be guided by it in all of the weightier affairs of life. Unrestrained passion. I thought the president maybe gave me this to go along with this fable that I read in the beginning. It fits in so beautifully as far as I'm concerned. Unrestrained passion, ungoverned appetite, envy, hatred, wealth, and power used to govern men and to crush them. These are the enemies of peace. They bring misery to the individual. They bring unhappiness in the home. They bring war and contention in the world. Discontent, misery, and death. They are the opposite of the peace which Christ came to give to the world. Why cannot men strive more earnestly than ever before to leave these out of their hearts, to overcome avarice, to give rather than to gain? This is life. This is true living. Only by the triumph of principles over evil can the world have that peace which Christ came to give to the world. God bless us that we may enjoy it through our obedience to his laws and commandments all our lives. I pray humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Henry D. Moyle. And now we'll hear from Terry R. Siemens for his address, We Believe in You. There are some of you who remember the classic children's story of Winnie the Pooh. As you recall, Pooh had a very unique way of going downstairs. He would go bump, 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 bump down the stairs on the back of his head. Well, one day Christopher Robin asked Pooh Bear, Why do you always go downstairs on the back of your head? He says, it must hurt. Pooh's response was classic. He says, I've been going downstairs that way for so long that I didn't know that there was any other way to do it. What he had to do is that he had to make a decision to do it another way. And he found that he could go downstairs like everybody else. But how many of us are like Pooh Bear? We get stuck in a rut with things that we do and decisions that we make that we don't realize that there are really other alternatives from which we can choose. 
This is how some of our habits form. Well, most of our decisions that we make are simple day-to-day type decisions. What time are we going to get up? Where are we going to go today? What entree am I going to order from the menu? Other decisions get a little bit more complicated, like what courses will I take? What job will I take? Where will I live? And other decisions really require a lot of thought. Whom shall I marry? What do I need to do to retain the spirit? How will I demonstrate my love for the Savior? We are making these decisions every day of our lives, and we're going to be making thousands more. You, brothers and sisters, have just made one of the key decisions of your life. That is, to work hard enough to graduate from one of the world's great institutions. Do you realize what that will mean? It doesn't mean that you simply survived. You've actually succeeded in accomplishing that for which you will be forever grateful. It doesn't matter whether you go on to work in the church or at home, in your community or in the workplace. You have made decisions and taken responsibility to succeed at something that only a handful of people have ever done. In very deed, you have prepared yourself for a life of service and continued learning by finding added meaning in your life through those experiences that you've had here at BYU. The significance of that will unfold as the years pass. Whatever your decisions, what I hope for you and what I pray for you is that you will make the Lord a key part of those decisions, whether they're great or small. I also hope that you'll remember a little saying that has guided me for years. It goes something like this. You are what you do. You do what you choose. If you don't like what you are, then change what you do. It's always amazed me that by combining the powers of heaven and the power of personal responsibility that all things are possible, even going downstairs one step at a time. I don't know whether you remember the last song of the remake of the musical The Wiz. Remember where the lion and the scarecrow and the tin man had joined Dorothy? They each wanted something that they didn't feel that they had. As they traveled to the Emerald City, they had experiences that allowed them to arrive thinking somewhat differently. At the end of the show, the lion realized his courage. The Tin Man recognized his heart, and the Scarecrow recognized his brains. Dorothy, however, was still unsure about how she was going to get back to Kansas. It was Glenda the Good who came to her and gave her the answer. She said, believe in yourself as we believe in you. My dear friends, we believe in you. As president of the BYU Alumni Association, I hereby confer upon each of you lifetime membership in the Brigham Young University Alumni Association. We offer our congratulations and we welcome you into this great association of over 370 other alums. You will have many opportunities to join your fellow alumni over the years in meaningful activities associated with the university. 
You're now part of a very great cadre of talented people just like yourself. I hope that you will give back to BYU with your time, with your talents, and with your treasure. We need your time and talents to help others to transition their lives from school to a remarkable work life. We want to stay connected with you. We have chapters in various geographic locations throughout the country. We have employers who have significant alumni working in their corporations. You may also have the opportunity to provide some career mentoring. Please accept these invitations and become fully involved with some of the greatest people that you will ever meet. Please come back and visit us and celebrate with us your successes and reinvigorate yourself with the spirit of the why. The world needs you. The Church needs you. Your families need you. And we as alumni need you. Welcome. I want to leave with my testimony. I know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. I know that the work in which we are engaged is the work of the Lord. I know that His hand guides this great institution. God bless you in all that you do. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Our Decisions Shape Our Lives. We've just heard from Terry R. Siemens. After the break, we'll return with Quentin L. Cook for Great Expectations. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Our Decisions Shape Our Lives. Next is Quentin L. Cook, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles at the time of this address, titled Great Expectations. My young friends, Mary and I are pleased to be with you. It is always a privilege to be at this unique and special university. There are many challenges that we face in our day. The world is literally in commotion. The coronavirus has impacted us all in unique and sundry ways. I will cover a few matters before I provide my principal message. The United States national election has demonstrated a deeply divided citizenry. Regardless of your political views of that election, the First Presidency in a letter dated October 6th asked individual members to please strive to live the gospel in your own life by demonstrating Christ-like love and civility in political discourse. As a church, we do not get involved in partisan politics. We are institutionally neutral regarding political parties and candidates. There are a few matters that we consider important regardless of candidates or parties. We are committed to supporting the founding constitutional documents of the United States, documents that in our doctrine were established for the protection of all flesh. In other words, it was for all people in all nations. In addition, we always support and advocate for religious freedom for all people. We are also committed to doing everything in our power to build faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I spoke to the BYU Provo faculty and staff last August. I mentioned that BYU has grown in both size and accomplishment. I indicated that knowledgeable friends had pointed out to me that BYU's typical incoming class of about 6,000 students is approximately 1,000 more than the first-year classes at Harvard, Stanford, and Yale universities combined. The average number of those admitted who are enrolled at those three universities is 1,633 each. If you look at a similar number of first-year students at BYU, including high school GPAs, ACT and SAT scores, and other relevant accomplishments, BYU compares very favorably. I actually believe all BYU students compare very favorably when you consider their preparation, accomplishments, and character. As leaders of the church, we appreciate all our young people and are grateful when they are striving to live the gospel of Jesus Christ and preparing themselves to help build the kingdom of God. My talk today is titled, Great Expectations. And in a few minutes, I will provide the context for this title. Regardless of whether you have great expectations, I know your family, friends, and church leaders have great expectations for you. As I look back on our church history, my heart rejoices when I think of how each generation has stood upon the shoulders of the previous generation. I also rejoice in reviewing the contributions of wave after wave of converts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite true accounts involves the dramatic immigration from Great Britain of new converts with great expectations. In June 1863, the renowned British novelist Charles Dickens went on board the passenger ship Amazon bound for New York. The passengers were converts to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Dickens was responding to the attention and interest of the British public in both our faith and the immigrants who were departing for the American West. Dickens wrote, I went on board their ship to bear testimony against them if they deserved it, as I fully believed they would. To my great astonishment, they did not deserve it, end quote. He was surprised by what he observed because of the disparaging reports of the church in British media. He eloquently described these English converts as, in their degree, the pick and flower of England. I have appreciated many of Charles Dickens' novels. His 1861 novel was titled Great Expectations. It was then and now, 150 years after his death, a highly acclaimed novel, both with the public and literary critics. It is widely considered a masterpiece of English literature. The novel depicts the growth and personal development of an orphan named Pip. Some have described the moral of the story as being that affection, loyalty, and conscience are more important than social advancement, wealth, and class. I like the fact that two years later, in observing our church's converts on the ship Amazon, he could see those same admirable qualities in our members who, for the most part, came from humble backgrounds. I've titled my message, Great Expectations, not because of the Dickens connection, but primarily because that title 
reflects the hopes and aspirations of our heavenly parents, of our Savior Jesus Christ, your earthly parents, and the leaders of the church for each of you and your generation. You are not perfect, but as President Russell M. Nelson described you in a devotional here at BYU a year ago, quote, you are the children whom God chose to be part of his battalion during this great climax in the long-standing battle between good and evil, between truth and error, end quote. With the great expectations with which you have been blessed, we would hope that this characterization would not make you prideful or even satisfied. Almost all of you are the recipients of eternally significant spiritual blessings. You are also blessed by the faithful contributions of church members, many of modest means. Church members have always sacrificed for the rising generation. I suggest you contemplate what the Savior said about those who were blessed in the Gospel of Luke. We read, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. In the Doctrine and Covenants in the early days of the Restoration, and referencing darkness reigning in the world, the Savior said, For of him unto whom much is given, much is required. In view of the Savior's teachings and his great expectations for you, I have chosen to speak about these expectations and what to avoid that keeps you from attaining them. One expectation we desire for you is that you stay on the covenant path and keep God's commandments so you can return and live with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ in the celestial kingdom with the fullness of happiness and joy promised those who keep the commandments of God. I am confident that we can have the joy and happiness we desire here and now and that God wants for us what must we do to attain it. You are at a critical threshold in your life. You are busy getting an education, planning for the future, planning to be able to support a family. Many of you have served missions and have callings in the church and have found your eternal companion. You have learned that balancing all these expectations takes planning and hard work. As I thought about the counsel that would be most important to you because of your great expectations, I will address two important categories. First, learning what is essential when the world is in commotion to protect and bless you and provide the happiness, peace, and success you desire. Second, avoiding detours and stumbling blocks that diminish this protection. Two months ago, I celebrated my 80th birthday. (laughs) This gives me a very long perspective on what is essential to provide protections. When Mary and I were still in our 20s in the 1960s, the turbulence, anger, and social unrest was similar to what we have experienced recently. We lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. The combination of racial unrest, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the unpopular Vietnam War, and a destabilizing drug culture resulted in demonstrations that included rioting and looting and the occupation by dissidents of administrative offices of major universities. In the face of this chaos, we were blessed to receive counsel from the then president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Harold B. Lee which was appreciated then and cherished now. 
President Lee's counsel, in addition to following the prophet, was for both families and individuals. First, build Zion in your hearts and in your homes. Second, be a light on the hill and an example in your community. And third, focus your vision and goals on the ordinances and principles taught in the temple. President Lee promised that we would be protected if we followed these principles, and we could live anywhere in the world. In my view, these principles are as relevant today as they were over 50 years ago, and they apply to you today. First, as you strive to build Zion in your hearts and homes, please understand the eternal institution of the family is the foundation for happiness. We are all members of families. We are children of God and part of His family. We are also part of the family into which we are born. Accordingly, a major goal is to commit to the eternal institution of the family. I would counsel you to find a righteous spouse that you admire and who will be your best friend. Marriage in this life is a sacred part of this eternal plan. In the world at large, many are choosing not to get married or are delaying marriage. The family is an internal institution ordained of God from before the foundation of the world. I assure you that the joy, love, and fulfillment experienced in loving, righteous families produces the greatest possible happiness we can achieve, especially if we make our home a sanctuary of faith. It is also the foundation for a successful society. Seeking marriage and having that as a righteous desire of your heart should be your goal. However, as righteousness, its own reward and is not dependent on having marriage and children in our lives. We may not be married or blessed with children or have other blessings now. But the Lord has promised that the righteous who are faithful may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. President Lorenzo Snow taught, quote, There is no Latter-day Saint who dies after having lived a faithful life who will lose anything because of having failed to marry when opportunities were not furnished him or her, end quote. Second, be a light on the hill and an example in your community. As you continue your education and then embark on your various occupations and responsibilities, you can be a powerful force for good. A very significant challenge will be to adhere to the scriptural injunction to live in the world, but not of the world. Elder Joseph Fielding Smith taught that while we are in the world, we are not of the world in the sense that we are under any necessity to partake of evil customs, fashions, follies, false doctrines, and theories. In addition, your contribution to the place where you live in a positive sense is part of your challenge if you are to be an example. Be a light on the hill, share the gospel, and live in accordance with the teachings you have received at this great university. Third, focus your vision and goals on the ordinances and principles taught in the temple. Despite the lack of righteousness in the world today, we live in a sacred holy time. The Lord has prepared President Russell M. Nelson, our prophet, through many years of temple-related assignments to preside over the church at a time when temples will truly dot the earth in unprecedented numbers. President Nelson commenced his service as our prophet by addressing us from the Salt Lake Temple. 
he asked us to begin with the end in mind and made it clear that the ordinances of the temple and the covenant pathway should be our primary goal. He has counseled us to gather scattered Israel on both sides of the veil. I will now turn to the need to avoid some detours and stumbling blocks that diminish happiness, peace, and success. There are many I could mention. I will cover a few. Some of the most common and pernicious are addictions, such as alcohol, tobacco, vaping, drugs, the distracting addiction to video games, social media, and pornography. These addictions have been stumbling blocks for the greatest number of people. Approximately 642,000 deaths annually in the U.S. are attributed to alcohol, smoking, and drugs. The Internet downloads related to pornography are by all accounts shocking. These addictions destroy life, impair brain function, and destroy marriages. They also impact the ability to earn a living and work successfully. The best way to avoid these addictions is to never, ever be involved with them. As I said when I spoke here in February 2017, I cherish your stone-cold, sober school reputation. I trust you are living up to that title. Please avoid these addictions. If you have challenges with any addictions, counsel with your bishop. The church provides excellent counseling and support. In addition to avoiding addictions, it is also important to avoid substituting the philosophies of men for the gospel of Jesus Christ. A great education can be an enormous blessing in fulfilling expectations and preparing to be swallowed up in the will of the Father. President Nelson is an excellent example. For some, education can also result in a stumbling block. Jacob, the brother of Nephi in the Book of Mormon, describes both sides of this issue. He acknowledges that learning is good if we hearken unto the counsels of God. On the other hand, learned men and women are foolish if they think they are wise and hearken not unto the counsel of God. Some assume that what they are learning should supersede the doctrine established by the hand of the Lord. Some are impressed by the complexity of scientific or intellectual learning and are embarrassed by the simplicity of the Savior's message. The philosophies of men have often challenged faith in Jesus Christ, and particularly His resurrection and His atonement. Let me share an example. In June of 2019, Mary and I were blessed to have an assignment in both Athens and Jerusalem. This gave us the opportunity of reviewing the Apostle Paul's visit to Mars Hill in Athens. When the Apostle Paul was on Mars Hill, as described in the Acts of the Apostles, he encountered philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics. The Stoics believed that the highest good was virtue, and the Epicureans believed the highest good was pleasure. Many Stoics had become proud and used the philosophy as a cloak for ambition and iniquity. Many Epicureans had become hedonists who took as their motto, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. The philosophers were more interested in telling or hearing some new thing. In the end, some mocked and some were dismissive of Paul's message. When we refuse to accept simple gospel truths for what they are, 
we are rejecting the Savior's message and His doctrine. Daily consecration is a great blessing. Heroic gestures or striving for recognition as a substitute for daily consecration should be avoided. In a lecture here at Brigham Young University many years ago, my friend James S. Jardine indicated that when he was a student, he thought of consecrating his life in one grand heroic gesture, but came to realize that consecration is not a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. It is a daily devotion. When I was young, I too wanted to prove myself through some heroic gesture. My great-grandfather, David Patton Kimball, was one of the young men who spent hours in the frigid Sweetwater River carrying members of the Martin Handcart Company across that icy water. That sounded like a significant kind of consecration. Later, as I visited with my grandfather, Crozier Kimball, he explained that when President Brigham Young sent the men on their rescue mission, he instructed them to do everything they possibly could to save the Handcart Company. Their consecration was specifically to follow the prophet. My grandfather told me that consistent faithful dedication to one's duty or to a principle is to be much admired. I now understand that as heroic as it was for David Patton Kimball to help rescue the pioneers, it would be equally heroic today to follow our prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, by striving to gather Israel on both sides of the veil and help rescue them. Some members profess that they would commit themselves with enthusiasm if given some great calling that provides recognition, but they do not find gathering Israel worthy or sufficiently heroic for their sustained effort. God uses us not according to our works, but according to His own purpose. We are at the very least unwise if our consecration is conditional or based on recognition or does not involve daily devotion, including daily repentance. Avoid foolishness, which can also be both a detour and a stumbling block. In the Gospel of Mark, the Savior enumerated some of the things that can defile man. He said, Out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetedness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, Foolishness. Strong's Concordance Greek Dictionary defines the Greek word translated as foolishness in Mark 7 to include senselessness and egotism. It is derived from a Greek word meaning mindless, stupid, ignorant, egotistic, rash, or unbelieving. Most of the scriptures that use the word imply lack of wisdom. These are all serious matters in their own right. Not only do these serious matters exist, but they are also accentuated in our day because of modern technology. Many of them come directly into our homes. Some are using the Internet to create hatred and disunity by only portraying one side of an issue, judging others by one misstatement that is not consistent with how they live their life and assuming that one communication reveals the inner self and ignoring a commendable life. Tech addiction, particularly pornography, is a serious problem. The sad consequences of this conduct 
could have been taken from the scriptural warning, wickedness never was happiness. My counsel is to avoid all evil conduct that can block happiness, peace, and success. Such evil conduct is contrary to God's commandments and is usually deemed to be a sin. Throughout my life, parents and teachers and mentors have often used the phrase, avoid evil like the plague. (laughs) In a general sense, I always understood that even getting close to a plague could have dire consequences. It was something you definitely avoided. I never thought I would live in a time when a worldwide coronavirus pandemic would have much the same impact as a global plague. Now I have a better understanding of the concept of avoiding evil like the plague. It has not been my intention to chronicle all the evils and vices in the world. I am confident that your generation has been taught this well. I am concerned that immorality in all its various manifestations should be avoided. Do not fall into the worldly trap of calling evil good and good evil. I would also caution you to not allow the desires of your heart to be directed primarily to worldly aspirations, goals, or accomplishments that, while not necessarily evil in themselves, can become stumbling blocks. President Spencer W. Kimball referenced Doctrine and Covenants section 1, which reads in verse 16, They seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world, and whose substance is that of an idol. President Kimball warned that idols can be material things or intangible things, like credentials, titles, and other worldly pursuits, if they become our primary goal and emphasis that deflect us from the path to godhood. Why was President Kimball concerned that these could become idols? Why is it that such aspirations can become stumbling blocks? The answer is contained in King Benjamin's counsel about becoming the sons and daughters of Christ. He taught, For how knoweth a man, the master whom he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? In conclusion, My challenge to you wonderful students is to learn what is essential when the world is in commotion, to protect and bless you and provide the happiness, peace, and success you desire. Please avoid detours and stumbling blocks that diminish this protection. My prayer is that you students will have some sense of how precious you are and how much you have to offer. My heart has been filled with gratitude for what you have already accomplished all over the world. No generation has been better prepared for the important times that lie ahead. Our great expectation for you is that you will love, serve, and worship the Savior, and that you will bless the world like no other generation. Be determined to continue on the covenant path and to be righteous. With your BYU education, you can be a means of breaking down prejudice, bringing the church more fully out of obscurity, and building faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my prayer for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 
You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Our Decisions Shape Our Lives, with thoughts from Henry D. Moyle, Terry R. Siemens, and Quentin L. Cook. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.